Good morning, church. I was contemplating to take my suit off and only be here in a nice, casual shirt to fit in. But an older church member said to me, please don't, because you give us, for the older ones in the, in the audience, you give us a sense of stability. <laughs> there is a text, though, in Scripture that says that a priest should not wear anything while in service that will cause him to sweat. So if I get to the sweating stage, if you'll forgive me if I'll take my jacket off. Let's start, though, with a prayer. Gracious Father, as we this morning open your word to Matthew chapter 8, we will be confronted with some fantastic, beautiful, miraculous events. But at the same time, we will be confronted with a decision that each one of us needs to make. It is for this reason that we invite you into our midst, praying that your Holy Spirit will move amongst us, that this message will be brought minus a man, that as we listen, we will hear your voice speaking to our hearts. And may it be that not one person will leave the sanctuary without having made a decision for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wednesday night coming, 13 years ago, just after midnight, the phone rang. When calls like that come in after midnight, you always know that something bad is to happen. It was my older brother on the other side of the line, on the other side of the world, calling me, begging me. I could hear it in the urgency of his voice when he said, please pray for my daughter, pray for Yonandi. Yonandi had just finished year 12, that previous December. She had completed a program similar to Arise and had formed with a group of other young people that were trained along with her, a team that were involved in Bible ministry, Bible evangelism. They had just completed one of their programs and were traveling to their next appointment. I asked my brother, what happened? What, what's wrong with you, Nandi? His response was, we don't know yet exactly what, what the issues were. All that we know is that the young people were in a terrible car accident. I woke my family up. We gathered around our bed and we laid Yunandi and the other kids in God's hands, pleading, reminding God that here was a group of young people, 10 in total, that had surrendered their lives to him, that was working for him. 
and that his hand of protection would be resting upon them. But as the night grew on and the phone calls kept on coming, more and more of the detail became more apparent. The young people had been traveling all in a minibus, all ten of them. Behind them was a doctor team that was traveling in the same direction. They were trauma specialists, both a husband and the wife, and they saw the accident happen. They were the first ones on the scene to triage the young people, to call the evacuation helicopter, to pick up those who they could save. And they waited with Yunandi after the helicopter flew off, taking with him the young people that they could save. They stayed with Yunandi in the paddock. Until an ambulance could arrive to evacuate her body. Oh, we were so certain that God was going to answer our prayer. By the time that day broke, I was at Sydney Airport waiting already for the first flight to take me back to Africa to, to support my brother and to support his family. I'm running ahead of myself. This morning's sermon title is Sermon in Overalls. Turn with me, and I hope that you've got your Bibles with you this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, there verse 1 starts off by saying, when he had come down from the mountain. Jesus had just concluded his sermon on the mountain. He had just invited the people. No, he's just pled with the people to make a decision. A decision for repentance. A decision to follow the narrow road instead of the wide road, to build on the rock instead of on, on, on the, the sandy soil. And he invited his audience to ask and to seek. He says in Matthew 7 verse 8, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it would be opened. By the end of chapter 8, what we will find is those that seek and who find is not the apparent religious ones, but it is the outcast of society. We see Jesus here in verse 11 saying, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. These are code language that, that Matthew uses throughout his book, saying that the apparent ones are not the ones, the religious ones are not the ones that are responding to the gospel. It is those that are outside that is responding. He continues in verse 12, but the sons of the kingdom, 
In other words, the religious ones will be cast out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, and so it was when Jesus had ended his sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was power, there was authority in the way that Jesus spoke. He did not need to quote others. He said, you've heard others say, but I say to you, power in what Jesus says. And as Jesus comes down from the mountain in chapter 8, we sense a shift in his ministry, a shift in the way in which he acts and how he moves amongst the people. It is as if there's an interplay between chapter 7 and chapter 8, where Jesus spoke in chapter 6 and 7. He now puts on the overalls, and he starts to act out. He starts to move amongst the people and act his ministry, his sermon, into a very practical way. And we see following is an overview of what we will find, miraculous events that will happen in this chapter. First, there will be a leper that will come to Jesus to be healed. Now, there's a problem there. Just in that one statement, a leper came. We'll go there later on. Then we see a healing of a centurion servant, a Roman soldier's servant that is sick, that comes to Jesus. In other words, one of the people that are not part of the insider group. Then we will see healing of Peter's mother-in-law. By the way, women had no status in Jesus' day. Then we'll follow driving out of demons, healing of many people after the Sabbath was over. Then Jesus moves his disciples into a boat, into a storm, and eventually coming full on in confrontation with demonic spirits. This is the chapter in a quick overview. This is what happens as Jesus is moving around uh, in, in, in chapter 8. How should we read and understand chapter 8? Friends, we can look at it, each story at a time, and we will need about six, seven sermons to cover the entire chapter, because each one is, is, is a sermon in its own right. We can look at it in, at, at its sublime beauty, and we can even recognize certain things that is implied, that is not spoken. But I would like, for time's sake, just bring out three themes that Matthew is trying to bring to us this morning. The first theme that, that he brings out is that that Jesus is, or Matthew is establishing an identity for Jesus. He continues 
with the identity establishing. The first is not so apparent, but if you would turn to me to Matthew chapter 8, and we read there verse 3, we'll, we'll notice something here. It says, Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. We go down to verse 8, and we read there, The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word. We go down to verse 13. Then Jesus said, what are you picking up? You're picking up that there is creative, restorative power that Matthew is trying to describe Jesus and connects him with Genesis chapter 1, where Jesus actually speaks a world into existence. This Jesus that has just put on his overalls to get involved in action speaks creative, restorative words of creation and recreation. The second one is that we see Matthew brings Jesus, identifies him as a healer. In verse 17, he quotes from Isaiah 53 verse 4, and he says, Surely he, the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It is in Matthew chapter 8 verse 2 that a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, saying to him, Lord, I want to be healed. Is that how things really happen with lepers? Can a leper just come to someone to be healed? Friends, once someone has been identified with leprosy, They would go down to the priest, the priest will examine them, and once they identify the leprosy, the family will take that leprous individual outside of the city. There will be no more human touch. They would be placed outside the walls of the city. The family would gather some essential belongings with food, and they will make a makeshift little hut outside, and they would set them up put food down, and they would withdraw into the city. Never again would anyone ever touch them again. In the earlier months and years, the family would go up and would not visit them, but would take them some clothing and and some food. But as the time progresses and as the disease slowly takes its toll, more and more the family would withdraw One of the greatest battles for these individuals is the knowledge that most probably their their disease is due to an innocent that God is judging them. They've worked it out to the pact, the religious leaders. You tell me your disease, and I will tell you what sin you've committed. Leprosy must have been the sin against the Holy Spirit because there was no return. Just imagine how a sufferer must have raked his brain wondering, what is the sin that I have committed that God would punish me in this way? 
What is the sin, the unpardonable sin, that has brought God's damnation over my life? If only I knew. If there was a slight breeze and people were in the vicinity, they had to call out, unclean, unclean. When, when the wind slightly blew, uh, blew 18 meters, they could not come closer to, to, to other people. So just imagine this day as this man hears Jesus and a great crowd approaching and he knows that this is his last chance. He has heard about the power of this man Jesus and he knows that, that this is his last chance that as he approaches the crowd, you can see the crowd react. They started to scream to him to stay away, to keep his distance. But he knew it was now or never. And he just put down his head and he started to run towards Jesus. And I can see the crowd picking up sticks and stones to throw at him, to keep him at bay. But the loneliness, the lack of touch, is a pain far worse than what sticks and stones can cause. And he just runs, and we see the crowd just opening a space right up to the feet of Jesus. And as he falls down, worshiping, Matthew says, he pleads, Lord, if it's your will, make me clean. What is Jesus' response? Here is a Jesus that could speak healing. He can speak a world into existence. He, he, he could have made clay and said to him, put this on you. He could have told him to go down to the Jordan and bathe seven times and he would be healed. But Jesus, in speaking, reaches out his hand and I can just hear the crowd gasp for their breath is he really going to do it? But Jesus knew the yearning of this man's heart. And he touches him. And in touching him, Jesus contaminates himself with the ailment of this man. Don't miss this point. Oh, my friends... Jesus came to this earth to be contaminated by our defilement of sin. That is why in John chapter 3 verse 14 that we read that Jesus, as, as the serpent was lifted up by Moses, so Jesus had to be lifted up. And I always battled with this concept, why would Jesus be symbolized by a serpent? Because Jesus took on the sin and the suffering of humanity on the cross of Calvary. Jesus became sin for us. So that healing, restorative healing, not just physical, but spiritual healing, could become yours and mine. So that we could be set free from the power of sin. Matthew identifies Jesus thirdly as the conqueror. In verse 23 to verse 20, uh, to 34, we read there that 
going to the other side, that Jesus says to his disciples, let's go to the other side, and they get into the boat. It is very interesting what, what Mark, the book of Mark described. He actually describes Jesus as a commander of a warship that takes his ship, and he casts them into the ocean, into and advance into a battle against the forces of darkness. And we see that a storm rages. In the book of Mark, it is as if the, the demonic spirit that is waiting on the other side is doing everything in its power to stop Jesus from reaching the other side. Oh, my friends, is your life today caught up in a raging storm because this Jesus that Matthew would like to introduce to us is a conqueror not just of the natural storms but also of the storms of your and my life then Matthew established the identity of Jesus as the son of God and what a unique way it is not the holy people that declares his true identity as the Son of God. It is in reality the demonic forces in, chapter, in, in, in verse 29 that says, and suddenly these demonic forces that were speaking through these two men on the other side, and verse 29, and suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew him. They knew who he was because they served under his command before the great rebellion in heaven started. They knew his power. They were there when a third of the angels were cast out of heaven. They knew exactly who Jesus was. But then Matthew identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Sorry, sorry, the next one, as Savior. Oh, my friends, none of the three groups identified in this chapter, the lepers, the Roman centurion, and Peter's mother-in-law could have entered into the sanctuary, into the inner sanctuary of the temple. They were, in other words, the people that were on the outer side. They, they were the marginalized. They, were the no, they had no religious status. Look, for instance, at the genealogy that, Jesus, uh, that Matthew gives of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, where he aligns Jesus with women, with people with a shady background. Jesus steps out in Matthew chapter 8, for these people, yes, it is very clear that Matthew is trying to say to us that Jesus came for the outcast. And there's a confession that I need to make this morning. Jesus, in actual fact, came for you. He came for me. Because I am part 
of that young ghost. There's one more point that I cannot let go. And that is found here in verse 4, where Jesus sends the leper, where? To the priest, to show himself that he's been healed. And I want to show you what the inspired pen writes. Every act of Christ's ministry was far-reaching in its purpose. It comprehended more than appeared in the act itself. So in the case of the leper, while Jesus ministered to all who came unto him, he yearned to bless those who came not. In other words, while, while Jesus' ministry was reaching certain people, he especially wanted to reach those people that were not moved by his ministry. While he drew the publicans, the heathens, and the Samaritans, he longed to reach the priests and the teachers who were not shut in by, by prejudice and tradition. He left untried no means by which they might be reached. In sending the healed leper to the priest, he gave them a testimony calculated to disarm the prejudice. This is what Jesus is and who he is, a, a, a God that became man who wanted to move, not to touch only the outcast, but even you and me that sit in church every week. The one overriding theme of chapter 8 is that Jesus came for those who could not help themselves for salvation. And my friends, that is the point of the gospel. Jesus died. He came, became man, because we could not save ourselves. The second theme that, that Matthew brings in this chapter is that Jesus established, or Matthew establishes Jesus' authority, and he does it in three different ways. The first is that he has authority over sickness and disease, and it is very easy as we read through this chapter to see Jesus move, and especially move and perform miracles where no one else were able to bring about change. The second one, over nature and the storms of life, that there's nothing that you and I can face in this world that with Jesus at our side, we will not be able to overcome. And then thirdly, over the forces and powers of darkness. And then we come to the last one that I would like us to look at, and that is that, Jesus, uh, that Matthew establishes the cost of discipleship. I want you to see something here. Matthew 8 verse 18 says, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Isn't that strange? Have you ever contemplated what was really going on here? Jesus came to reach not only individuals, but especially the masses of people. And as the people started to congregate around Jesus, what a great opportunity to minister. 
Why would he at this point say to his disciples, let's go over to the other side? By the way, who was on the other side? Oh, my friends, the Jews had handed the other side over to the Romans, to the non-Jews, and to the Jews that disconnected from their spiritual heritage. They had, in actual fact, handed the other side over to the devil. Why would Jesus withdraw his disciples to the other side? There's more apparent than what is apparent in this chapter. You see, there is a difference between the crowd and the disciple. As Jesus was performing these miracles, the people started to amass around Jesus because they were caught up in his miracle working, and they wanted to follow him. The crowd was swept up by the miracles. They came for what he had to offer. A true disciple doesn't come for what is to be offered, but comes because of the person who is Jesus Christ. Yes, the the crowd wants to listen to Jesus, but a true disciple wants a king to rule in their life. They want to become followers and do as Jesus does. The crowd longs for a savior from their problems, from their lives, but the disciple gave up everything to follow Jesus in spite of the problems that they might face. The crowd received what they wanted and they moved on with their life away from Jesus. A disciple gave up everything that they had in order to follow Jesus. In order to become a disciple, we need to step out of the crowd and get into the boat that is launched to go to the other side into the territory where Satan will attack, will attempt to destroy. To step to the other side means that we will allow Jesus' life to become like our life, that we will be treated as he was treated. And in the Sermon of the Mount on the Beatitudes, we see that as we come more and more, become more and more like Jesus Christ, eventually that the world will hate us for righteousness' sake and will persecute us for righteousness' sake. The cost of discipleship is not to have a great place to live in. And therefore we read in chapter 8 as a, a a religious leader comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I will follow you, that Jesus says, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man have no place to lay down his head. Like the story of Job, when we become a disciple, we also might be able, to, will be asked to sacrifice everything that we have, our home, our wealth, our marriage, our comfort, our health, and even our life. There's a cosmic war that is raging amongst us. 
If we are willing to become a disciple of Jesus, there is a price to pay for that. And that is that Jesus might place so much confidence in us. Like in the book of Job, that he will say to Satan, Satan, throw everything at David. I know that no matter what you will throw at him, he will testify to the reason why he's faithful to me. Oh, my dear friends, as a disciple of Jesus, the storms of life, of a cosmic war, will rage in our life as well. It is then when parent marriages might fail. It is then when mum might get cancer, when a spouse might die, when I lose my job, lose my mobility, and even as I follow the principles that are given out in the Word of God and I'm an anointed, that the anointing will do nothing in terms of healing. It is then that Satan comes and says, this God that you serve, is he really a God of love? Does he really care? Hasn't he abandoned you? One John four verse eight says that God is love. In other words, First John four eight says that the motive of God is love. That the purpose of everything that God does is love. But what if that which I'm looking at doesn't seem to reflect that God of love? It was a Sunday night. We had a training for our Sabbath school uh, group in a church plant that I was pastoring. And uh, my wife and my daughter had to be part of the training for the kids' Sabbath school class Our daughter's marriage has just broken up. She and her two-year-old started to live with us. The little one was very sick, so I said to my wife and my daughter, you guys go, you can report later on what has been done. I will look after this little one. And um, uh, an hour into their their training session, I realized that the little one was, was really in trouble. She was battling to breathe, so I phoned my wife and said, which hospital Queenbean Hospital or Canberra Hospital. She said, Queenbean Hospital doesn't have a doctor. You better go to Canberra. And I picked up the little one, and as I placed her into the car, into the baby's seat, she coughed and vomited all over me. And I grabbed her, stepped out into the garage, and as the light, to, to, to clean myself up, and as the light of the garage fell onto her face, I noticed that the blood was coming out between her eyelids and her eyeballs. A terrible sight. We rushed her to Canberra Hospital. The emergency team immediately started to work on her. And a doctor and a nurse started to strap her arm down. And they brought out this terrible thick needle that looked as thick as her arm. Now, I know people I'm talking as a grandfather, and they started to push it into her little arm. And I could feel her body just reacting to the pain 
and I, and I stepped away because I, I just could not bear the pain that she was going through. But, but her eyes kept on following me and she whimpered as, as they pulled out the needle because they couldn't find any blood. Halfway pulled it out, turned it a little bit and again pushed it in and she whimpered more and she, her eyes followed me and she pled. She said, Opa, help me. And as they kept on working, they eventually brought two more adults there, four people holding down a two-year-old and a grandfather standing in the corner observing this pain and this agony that his little granddaughter is going through. I was having a battle to hold myself at bay because every fiber in my body wanted to jump in and push them away and rescue her from the pain. I knew that I could not. I knew that the only way that I could help her was to allow the pain to continue so that they could eventually discover what was wrong with her. The only way as I started to sweat in that ice-cold winter Canberra because I was experiencing all the pain that she was suffering and more was to go behind her and to put my face against her face. And as I cupped her head in my hands, I just wept for the pain that she was going through. Oh, my friends, while I'm sharing a true story, I think you're getting the message that I'm trying to share about God. That while at times when we as disciples of Jesus Christ is in full attack from Satan and experience that God is distant, that God is no different to an earthly father who knows that the only way that he eventually can break the hold of sin for eternity is to allow the effect of sin to rage its full course until everyone can identify who Satan truly is. It is then that the words of name 1 verse 9 will become true that God will draw a line and say that the effect of sin will never again happen. It is then that he will inaugurate what we find in, in Revelation chapter 21, that he will, he will lead us into a new heaven and a new earth, a new earth in which there will never again be any tear shed, any pain or suffering or aging, or dying. But in this process, where is God? At exactly the same spot where a grandfather was with his little granddaughter, so much closer, weeping for the agony that his child is going through. Oh, my friends, I left for Africa to be with my brother and my family. 
to support them to work through the death of their daughter. Eventually preaching the, the sermon with the title, The Great Question, Why? Why a disciple of Jesus? Why the enormity of the cost of discipleship? And as I speak to my older brother and his wife, and I ask them the question, has there been a positive outcome of this enormity of price that you've paid? Slowly they nod their head and they say, yes, there has. If it was not for the death of your daughter, we as a family would never have come closer to God. We were so busy making money in our business, but nothing of that ever matters anymore. The only thing that matters now is our relationship with Jesus because we know that our daughter is resting till that wonderful day when Jesus will come back, and that is very soon. It not only brought them as a family to, closer to God, but it brought them as a family and the wider family closer to each other. And says my brother, he says, as he went on with his work, uh, continuing after the funeral, many people afterwards came and spoke to them and said, we've been waiting, we've been watching you. Waiting at what point you will turn away from God, turn away from your faith. The fact that the death of your daughter actually drew you closer to God, not moved you further away from God, gave us the courage to surrender our lives to Jesus as well. Oh, my friends, yes, Jesus wants to be the miracle worker in your life, but he wants to be more. He wants to be your savior your master, your Lord. He wants to invite you today, no matter what cost, for you and I to become his disciple. Are you willing to accept that invitation today? Father, the price of discipleship is enormous. Because for some of us, you might ask us to pay the ultimate price. But right at the end, just on the other side of the hill, is eternity and a Savior that is waiting for us. Father, some of us in this audience are battling with, with sickness and with pain and with heartache. And so often Satan has brought the concept, the idea that you had forsaken them. My prayer is that today you would reveal yourself to them right there next to them, weeping for their pain, having the power to intervene and bring an end to their suffering and pain, but trusting them enough to become a witness in the heavenly courts to proclaim the grace and the true character of God. Father, 
reveal yourself. Thank you that in the miracles that we've looked at today, we can see the true essence and the being of God and know that he's not distant, know that he's got the power to be with us and to carry us through. May the words of this song be the prayer, be the commitment of our heart. May the grace of God the Father the love of Jesus Christ and the all-abiding presence of the Holy Spirit be poured upon each one and everyone this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching, and take care.